Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, new friend, Xavier Hope. Xavier is an award-winning attorney, legal, and cultural contributor to ESPN Las Vegas and host of Suit Up News, a news magazine and variety program focusing on politics, law, social justice, and sports. Xavier is also a Fortune 500 speaker, yoga instructor, and vegan chef. Also welcome back, Natalie Brasington. Natalie is a multimedia producer, content creator, director, strategist, and media programming developer. She specializes in building media programs for social service agencies, nonprofits, and community groups through her hybrid media production company and 501c3 nonprofit organization with and about projects. I actually partnered up with Natalie for a comedy show, a fundraiser at one and only Black-owned comedy club in Harlem. That's right. On May 25th, May 25th, that's a Thursday, 6 p.m., there will be an incredible lineup of comics to benefit the six Title I schools in Harlem section of DOE School District. Keith Robinson, Yamanika Saunders, Gianmarco Cerezi, Mark Theobald, Sarah Contreras, and myself. This is an especially critical moment to support public education. Let's not wait for the city to do the right thing and equitably fund our schools. We're ready to do what our government won't. No one is coming to save our youth. Show them that true leadership is service. So please, if you know someone, you know a company, an organization, and you listen to my podcast all the time, help. That means send funds. Go to withandaboutprojects.networkforgood.com. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. Email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast. And Twitter is Friends Like Us 10. Come more than a friend. Leave us a tip or a donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us. Special shout out to our Patreon friends. It's because of you we keep going. Now for our golden friends, you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us and be golden. Merch is available. T-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, tank tops. All available on my website, marinafranklin.com. Weekly on my YouTube channel. I go live with my assistant, Evelyn Frick, my wacky friend, Dave Juska. We give updates to the show. We shut off fans who leave reviews. And we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by. And sometimes we even offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. Speaking of free tickets to comedy shows, May 22nd, I will be headlining. I will be doing a newish hour at the Fat Black Bar at the Comedy Cellar. Go to thecomedycellar.com and get those tickets. Show up this Saturday at the YouTube Live. And I will tell you how to get on my VIP list for free tickets to that show on May 22nd. That's this Monday. With friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still if you want to. Be nice. And Black Lives Matter.
Whether it's the larger corporate coffee companies or the small local coffee shop, it seems like the coffee choice we have today are over-roasted and bitter or under-roasted and sour. And to top it off, bad coffee can be <laughs> really expensive. At Mariposa Coffee, they believe you shouldn't need to add cream and sugar to enjoy your coffee. They have a unique roasting process, so their coffee is clean, smooth, fresh, and a tasty that you can drink black. I've had their coffee. I love their coffee. Every time you see me with a coffee mug, know it's their coffee. And at just $12 per pound, you'll have enough money left over to buy eggs or gas or maybe more coffee. What? Say word. More coffee. They offer flavored coffees and decaf coffee if that's what you like. Shop online today at MariposaCoffeeCo.com and enter promo code FranklinFriends10. That's FranklinFriends10 to receive 10% off your first coffee order. That's MariposaCoffeeCo.com for smooth, enjoyable, and affordable coffee. I just want to welcome you both so much for taking time out to come to the show, friends like us today. Xavier, I haven't seen you like in God knows how long. It feels like 10 years, but how long has it been? It's been a minute. Uh, you know, at the pandemic years, it's, it, we get, we, we learn, we're looking at five years at least. Right now. Is it five? Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. And Xavier was, back, was backstage with me in my first my first ever taping of the special single black female. Yeah. My lawyer, he was there. He got me a great deal on HBO's writing divorce. You are still doing law or absolutely. Uh, it's, um, finishing up a couple of messages with clients before this call. You know, the work doesn't stop just cause I'm recording on your show. (laughs) <laughs> and you got me one of the best deals ever for HBO's divorce. Thank you very much. They didn't even realize they had signed over what they signed over. How we do it. So, thank God for you, Xavier. And Natalie, yeah. with and about projects, right? Yeah. Um, which Natalie, I met through Amy Schumer years ago doing a photo shoot. And she also did my cover for single black female so all that work you saw on single black female the picture with me with billy that's natalie yeah that's me and incredible thanks i yeah i do what i can so i brought you both here today because you both are so exceptional people obviously you do great work you're very involved you're conscious people Natalie brought, and I wanted to share this with you, Xavier. Natalie brought me in on a project, a fundraiser that we're doing May 25th at the Harlem Comedy Club. It's a fundraiser for a defunded school. But I'll let you talk about it, Natalie. Can you tell me, like, when you brought it to me, like, what was going on with PS180 in New York City? Sure. Um, I can talk most specifically about PS 180, but it's really all of the district three schools in Harlem that we are trying to build some equity for and, you know, provide a new funding platform because it in the midst of city budget cuts, there was a 300 over $350 million state uh, city budget cut to the department of ed in 2022, you know, the Department of Ed countered with a lawsuit. Ultimately, it did not go through and those budget cuts were made. This was in the the middle of pandemic uh, era funding drying up. 
massive unenrollment, schools that are under-enrolled across the district. So it's it's trying times for public education in general. And, you know, I, I think every school is feeling some level of that. However, how schools weather the storm is very different. When you talk about school equity, you you can't have that conversation without talking about segregation in schools. And you can't talk about how the policies that drive inequity are amplified and exacerbated by personal choices that parents make and that there are uh, schools that have very different resource pools. So when faced with these huge budget deficits, they're able to kind of rally their troops, get their fundraisers done. They have PTAs that have uh, a lot of bandwidth and a lot of funding. And the landscape for schools in underfunded or underserved neighborhoods is just very different. There's not the same ability to fill those big budget gaps with just the parent pool. So the premise that I, I brought to Marina is that it's it's we can't solely rely on overworked, underpaid educators, stressed out parents to, you know, put feet pound the pavement selling cookies and doing these little micro fundraisers anymore to try and provide students the same opportunities that they would get 10 blocks south of where we live in schools that, you know, accept enrichment, robust enrichment programs is a norm. Um, things that they, you know, don't necessarily have to fight for, our, our kids in, in Harlem schools do. So if we really want to stand behind our educators, want to say we believe in the promise of public education, we believe in the infinite possibility of the amazing young people in this community, we really need to rally around and uh, act in solidarity, unify the schools that are underfunded and create broad funding sources and platforms that can equitably distribute unrestricted funds to all of the public schools who are in need. Because if we don't, the funding formula is such that if we don't get more seats in those schools, if parents aren't feeling comfortable coming back to those schools, enrolling their children in the schools and the communities that they live in, then the funding issue is just going to get worse and worse as our headcount in those schools gets lower and lower. And it doesn't really make sense. We have amazing educators. We have strong, connected communities. Everything that, you know, your typical white liberal parent will say they're looking for in a school, you can find in the schools here. So there's a there's a courageous conversation and a deep dive that has to happen about why is it that you are taking your your fundraising capacity, your social capital to schools not where you live? Why are you investing in communities that aren't outside your front door? And I think that gets really tricky. But what we can do is shed light on uh, the, the, the people that are doing amazing work in our neighborhood, the educators that are putting in all of the hours, the parents who are, are there before pickup after school. And a thanks and a way to say we acknowledge your efforts and we're here with you is to all rally behind those and not think of it as just the responsibility of the school to raise its money because I'm done making kids sing for their supper. It's just, it's, it's just not aligned with the values that we profess in this city. So Xavier, you hear that and I know you're in Chicago and I saw you shaking your head. You have kids who've gone through Chicago public school system. Yeah. Um, Navigating the public school system as a parent is a full-time job. Um, I have one 
uh, daughter that's about to graduate from public high school, but it's one of the best high schools in the city it's, and one of the best high schools in the country. It's a selective enrollment high school. You have to test in, um, you know, spend personal letters, all this stuff like that. And my son is about, and swear Michelle Obama went to high school with the young high school. Um, and it's where I went to high school. And now my where is that? It's 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 on the it's in West Loop and it's pretty. It's a gentrified neighborhood in Chicago. It's it's a it's one of the most. It's probably one of the hottest areas in the city right now in terms of real estate. I live over here. Uh, my son is actually about to start as a freshman at Whitney Young as well. But getting them all the way to the point to get to a school like Whitney Young required so much maneuvering as a parent and getting them to the schools that they they went to along the way to get them at Whitney Young. Not every parent will have the resources and the network and the connections to maneuver their kids through school so they can get to the best high schools and then in in turn gets them to really great institutions of higher learning, uh, which separates income gap and all these things just continue to exponentialize over time. And so I was privileged to be able to to go into a school like Whitney Young and give the opportunity to be able to help learn how to navigate a system like that. Um, So many parents just don't. uh, And they are and there's so many, only so many amount of kids we can get to a school like a Whitney Young or, or a Jones High School or a North Northside Prep or Walter Payton High School. Those are the, the four best high schools in the city um, that you have to test into. And not every kid's going to have the capacity or the, the support in the classroom or the resources in the, cl- in the various underserved schools to take them along that route as well. And so there's so many different obstacles against parents that makes getting an education unequal. There is a Supreme Court case, San Antonio versus Rodriguez, and it was grounded in the fact that certain schools get paid more per per pupil and they have better opportunities to succeed. And the Supreme Court said that was okay. And so until a system like that changes um, and you but you are limited to where you can live in terms of where your school is and and how the general funding is for the area. It's not just the education, it's everything around you, it's small businesses, it's, it's, it's health and mental uh, resources, all those things. Heck, there are places to even exercise. Like, these impact learning. And, and, and so there's so many different things that cannot be fed into in terms of dollars, in terms of the ability for parents to pay and different things of that nature. It is it's incumbent upon those who really care about children, who really want to be able to close that gap to be able to then fund, um, at least try to do as much as possible to be able to, to lessen that. So there isn't such a burden on those communities and a burden on society at large. Uh, and so the work that you're doing that is amazing. And I'm, I'm glad that Marina okay. partnered with that because it, it, it is sorely needed in, in all of our different urban centers across America and underserved communities, even in rural areas as well. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up the bandwidth issue. Uh, in New York, you get a selection of 12 schools that you can put down on your school choice form. When my oldest daughter was going into pre-K, I toured 13 schools to find our 12 <laughs> for the list. And if I didn't have a weird freelance schedule where I can make up that time at night and, you know, maneuver my life, it wouldn't have been possible. And the reality is that there are only so many seats in those best schools. Mm -hmm. No matter what you do, you're not going to make that building that's really succeeding bigger. It's never going to house the entire district. Mm -hmm. So think it complicates issues of school choice. Okay. You know, Bloomberg brought that 
that program in as he ushered in a bunch of new charter schools in New York. And these are experiments that our, our lawmakers are, are making. But even if, you know, anybody can choose to apply to those schools, there's only so many spots. And where does that leave the rest of the kids in the district? If we're not investing in every school, every child is not going to have an equal playing field or even close to it. No, no child left behind, right? Isn't that what they said? That was uh, NCLB was Bush era legislation, and the it. I'm I'm really oversimplifying it, but it equated uh, performance with funding. Mm, so I see. Yeah. Title One schools that weren't m- meeting certain benchmarks were actually penalized, which is bass backwards. If you're needing more support than to say you're student populations in crisis. So we're going to take more money away from you is it absolutely makes no sense, but there've been moves, you know, t- since then, but, uh, yeah, that was NCLB. And then it says here, like we, we put this article in, but it was written in, I, w- I want to say 2022 about how Harlem got millions in New York city's budget in for 2023, but there's so many conflicting articles, uh, Natalie, about the budget. And I just thought, did you see these articles? What did, yeah. what was your view of this particular article that was written in 2022 as opposed to now? Now, I'll just say real fast, it says here, the $101 billion budget passed by council um, had millions of dollars going towards the schools of Harlem. The package was described as the get stuff done. That's our mayor. Adams budget and will cover the 2023 fiscal year. Besides major items like subway safety, tax credits for low-income families, the budget also includes a smaller neighborhood funding allocated by Harlem's three council members, Sean Abru, Kristen Richardson, who I know well, Jordan, she's been actually on the podcast, Diana Ayala. The members outlined some important neighborhood funds for which the budget should be spent on. And they also have a separate budget with small allocations for Uptown Grand Central, Brotherhood, Sister Soul, and more. It says, we are immensely proud of the work we did to advance equity and bring an infusion of critical dollars back into the district. This combined funding represents the strong commitment of my office to build a better, more equitable equitable district for all. And I'm looking forward to sharing the good news with my constituents. However, this is what they said that PS, so between 50 and 70,000 each in funding for the following schools, which is, PS 180, which is our school, Hugo Newman is one, PS 123, Mahalia Jackson, PS 154, Harriet Tubman, PS 47, Arthur Tappan, PS 190. So I could go on and on, but that doesn't, between 50,000 and 70,000 is what they were allocating back in June of 2022. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad to hear there's funding coming in. That's never a bad thing. We'll see. I, you know, I actually called our school principal to ask about this and say, Hey, do you know, like how much money we're getting and what we can spend it on? And they don't. They're the principals learn about this stuff. Uh, oftentimes not, not too far in advance of when we do. Uh, actually that might be an exaggeration, but still that's great. Sure. More funding is great. However, the formula in general, how we fund our schools per student is hurting Harlem. The 
The idea that we um, were promoting smaller classroom size and then we're saying we're going to equate your school budget with how many students that you have doesn't make a lot of sense. Like you're talking about the size of your mouth at that point. We don't want so many students in classrooms. We're going to fund per student. So we have smaller classrooms, less money. The reality is when people left, when families left New York City in the midst of the pandemic, when under enrollment meant that seats were vacated in the lower part of District 3 and a bunch of Harlem parents saw those vacated seats and said, oh, I didn't know I could get in PS blah, 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 that they didn't think that they assumed it was a really competitive school to get into on the Upper West Side. And now some of that bureaucracy of trying to get in these schools was uh, less, less so. They left. And you then make your school budget based on if you have, you know, 20 first graders versus 10 first graders, you get half the budget for first grade. It's kind of like a retail versus wholesale model, where if you're judging on like per student, that's how you equate your funding instead of per class. That means if that class has half the budget, they probably don't have a music program this year. They, they probably are losing something. There's a staff person they need that's not being hired. And the impacts of pandemic era trauma was felt more acutely in communities, his, communities of color, communities with uh, lower incomes To So we're still reeling from that. The pandemic era has, uh, money is starting to dry up. Oftentimes the city would come in in the 11th hour and pay the unpaid paid bills uh, when schools couldn't. And what they're saying now is we're not going to be doing that anymore. I think everyone in a leadership position is kind of bracing to see what they are going to get. And if it doesn't cover what's going to happen, because they've been warned that it might not be that you get the, the same sort of help in the 11th hour to cover your programs that you did. And if we start losing our enrichment programs, then those parents aren't coming back. They're not going to, the people that live near the school or not going to go to the school. When I walk my daughter to school, I walk by a bus stop every day and there is a crowd of kids and parents waiting to take the bus down school as, you know, right at the crossing guard <laughs> to the public school that they could hit with a stone. <laughs> and I just really love to see that situation change in our neighborhood. And I, I, you know, obviously I'm not, I don't have the know-how or capacity, but what I can do is leverage amazing people like you, Marina, who have these platforms and have access to these public figures to shine a light on this and then come together in this joyful comedic moment to raise some funds and to, to point out, sort of get that spoonful of sugar makes the medicine down messaging out there about what's going on. So you hear that, Xavier, and like, you know, I, it, it makes me reflect to like my dad not wanting me to go to schools like in my neighborhood, like, and I'm black, right? And like, my dad was basically like, you, baby, you can't go to that school. So like, Xavier, did you experience that as well? Where you were like, I mean, Whitney Young, I wish I had gone to Whitney Young, you know, like Whitney Young is, let me tell you, my dad would always say, Baby, these are the scores that Whitney Young has. Now let's compare it to your school. <laughs> and I'd be like, thanks a lot, Dad. You know, uh, I don't live in that neighborhood or I can't go to Whitney Young or my test scores. So I guess my question to you, Xavier, is did you, did you ever grapple? Did you grapple with that? Like, if you were to, like, you're listening to Natalie. Like, I listen to Natalie and I go, well, 
I don't know. As a parent, though, if I had the opportunity to send my kid to a school outside of the neighborhood that has like, you know, higher scores, would I do that? You know? Yes, that's a tough one. Um, because I, I remember, I, I just, I got a really good, good luck of the draw, Marina. I mean, I just so happened to have to, when I got into high school, when young was in seventh grade in the, in the academic center, and I, I just scored really well. And I mean, that's pretty much, um, I would, I'm, I grew up poor. So I, if I didn't have, if I didn't make it that way, I don't know what would have happened to me. Um, because that wasn't the experience that my siblings had. And I had a different experience with, from them as a result of that. Um, and so uh, and, and my family is direct, can directly see what can happen if your kids don't go to the same type of school. So I was acutely aware of that in terms of my kids in particular living in the city of where I lived and, and what that resulted into the schools that they went to. Um, not every parent is able to do that. It's just, you know, in terms of upper mobility and the, the type of job you have, the, what it work, what it costs to live in certain neighborhoods. It's unfortunate because it's a direct correlation between how much your parents can make um, and then my, and also the time that they have to be able to pour into your education uh, of the, of kids. And it's unfortunate that, that creates such a, a tremendous gap. So um, I speak from a measure of privilege um, and I, I understand that and I know that. And as a result of seeing that operate in different spaces in my family, I can openly say it does make a huge difference. Yeah, it's a weird, but you know, it's, it's like listening to Natalie, you know, for the first time, I never really thought of the privilege even that I had you know, to have a father who was like, you know, comparing the scores of schools and going, you know, you can go here if you want, or you can do this, or I prefer for you, those scores are so important. I need you to get, you know, cause he knew you're competing as a black kid too. So you, you're trying to put your kid in. And I know Natalie, you're not saying this is what you need to do, but we don't look back at these schools in these situations as ones who've had the privilege or the advantage and go, how can we help except for like what we're doing today? Like for the first time, I'm looking at all the fundraisers I've done for comedians uh, in lower Manhattan at very well-to-do schools. And I'm, I told Natalie, I was like, I don't know why I did that. <laughs> they don't need, they don't need me. They don't need me like, like seriously, like when you can throw a thousand dollars at a problem or $10,000 at a problem in the area that I was asked to do a fundraiser, I'm like, what? Like, I would, I just, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Can they, can, I, those people, if you're listening, we would love you to throw a $10,000 <laughs> at our problem. Come join the revolution. We got you. We're excited. Um, yeah, I, you know, the, it's inherently different though, for a, a black and white kid. And, um, I'm in a, you know, at the risk of ruffling feathers and have people saying you're, you're holding a double standard. A double standard is predicated on an even playing field. And it's not the same thing when a black family from Harlem decides to send their kid to a neighborhood 
or to a school outside of our neighborhood because of test scores, they're integrating that score, that school. When, you know, when a white kid decides to leave Harlem to go to that same school, they're adding to segregation. I don't, I know that's not the motive. I know that these are parents who are carrying their Black Lives Matter duffel bags on the bus <laughs> to their white school out of Harlem. And at a certain point, we're going to have to recognize that cognitive dissonance and talk about it. You know, I had a a, a mother say a couple of things. One anecdote, I had um, our amazing principal at 180, Janika Parker, incredible, incredible administrator, does a monthly coffee chat where you can come in, get a donut and coffee, and they're, you know, themed, but you can just chat and have access to the administration and talk about the school. At that first one of this school year, um, a mom in the room said, you know, I'm glad to see some white moms in the room today because I've lived in Harlem my whole life. And what I've seen is that the way the, the, the streets look, the way the sidewalks look has changed dramatically since I was a child. But inside our schools, it, it hasn't. So what that's telling me is that you think our neighborhood is good enough for you to live in, but you don't think our kids are good enough for your kids to learn with. So if you are coming to a historically black neighborhood as a white person that isn't, you know, inherently dicey, I recognize that for myself and my family. We are working class. I'm a legit broke bitch who is in HDFC housing and I qualified for it very legitimately. So, you know, class is an issue there as well. But if you're then saying not only am I going to come in in the into this neighborhood in the context of gentrification and displacement, and I'm going to treat it like a bedroom community and I'm going to use my social capital to go elsewhere, I think you have some soul searching to do. And I, I know that it feels very privileged because it feels like I'm saying, well, I can afford to send my kid to a bad school. My kids are not going to a bad school. They're going to a wonderful school. And we don't have the shiny bells and whistles. We don't have the galas and the fundraisers. The landscape is different for sure. We need resources. But the lessons that they're learning there academically and then how to be a person in this world, what the world looks like, that they are, in fact, as white children, not part of the global majority. You know, my daughter recognizes that she is a minority in her classroom, and that has provoked conversations and we are having those from a very early age. And I, I want my, chi my children to learn and have a really robust, you know, really meaningful education that takes them places. But first and foremost, I want them to be good people in this world. Mm -hmm. And we have such strong, connected, beautiful communities here in Harlem that I just I truly feel bad for people who don't want to take part and be part of them. And, and, and what many of those parents could, would say is, I I'm just trying to you know make get a, a good education for my kid. I'm living the best place that's economically feasible as possible. I don't see how I'm contributing to a problem. I'm just trying to do the best for my family, like any other family would do. And I didn't know that I'm causing this problem, and I didn't know I was part of the problem. And as a matter of fact, hey, I don't, I'm not here to save the world. And I think that many people will will say these things not recognizing the social impact of the neighborhoods that they are in. Your actions, you think that you're not causing any harm, but if you are taking these actions, there is real social harm to what's happening around you. And I think that uh, people need to be able to hear what these harms, 
result in and how your their personal be their personality and how they're how they've tried to maneuver around. Uh, they need to be able to be told that, hey, this actually does have consequences um, of your actions instead of just saying, hey, I'm just trying to hey, I'm just trying to raise my kid like everyone else. Me too. You know, I had I had a, a mom, a black mom who, you know, made the choice to leave our school, say in this this district conversation to me that I could afford to do so. But I could afford to go to a school that's not testing well because I'm white and that means my kids have a leg up. I think that's a legitimate point, and I see that. But it's like, I, you know, I. It's not that I don't want my kids to get a good education. That's extremely important to me, and they don't have the financial privilege that some of their white counterparts in this neighborhood have. They're, they know that. So, I don't expect that I can just afford to experiment. And the school choice is just some dalliance for me because my kids are going to be fine. I really, sincerely believe in the school that they're going to. And I believe that they're getting a great education. And I enjoy and benefit from being part of a community where parents leave casseroles on the doorstep of other parents when they're all COVID quarantining, or we can text each other to pick each other's kids up if we're running late for pickup or drop off. And in in the moment that we're living in where one in four teenage girls has planned her suicide, the argument for social emotional learning and the health and feeling connected to a community and how mental health outcomes and security affect your capacity for learning is an important conversation to have. So the fact that my children know everybody in their building, that I have access to the admin and that if there's a problem, I can get someone on the phone means a lot to me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the kids there, they have an Instagram page they you could see the community with the kids that you know when they come together it's a beautiful thing I'm I am really excited to meet the teachers to meet the administrators at the school to be a part of such a um because Natalie brought up a good point it's not just her school it's all the other tier one schools that we also want to support that are also going through this and I just think Harlem Comedy Club, which is also, by the way, the only black comedy club in New York City, one of the few actually global <laughs> in the United States, you know, that we do it there in Harlem. So it's like it's all about reinvesting in a black neighborhood um, where people are deciding to also live that aren't black, you know, and that's the point that Natalie brought to me that I I was just like, yes, this is such a good point. The real estate affordable, how everyone all of a sudden living in Harlem, but not investing in Harlem is a huge problem. Now, I want to say this, um, uh, that states the thing here, how we fund, she said this a while ago, just so you know, um, how we fund schools inherently inequitable, rich neighborhoods equal well-resourced schools and economically disadvantaged neighborhoods equal insufficient resources. Thank you, Natalie, for the good work you're doing. Wish we didn't need fundraisers for schools. And then she says that statistic Natalie shared is chilling, not contemplated, but planned. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's what I talked about earlier about the Supreme Court case, San Antonio versus Rodriguez. I mean, it's pretty much legalized uh, segregation and, and, and relates to funding for public schools. 
Um, and that's the reality that we live in. And up until that changes on some some legal front, um, that will continue to be the reality in America. Yeah, I mean, Jim Crow's over, but segregation isn't. Mm -hmm. Our schools are more segregated nationwide than they were in 1991. And even when there's been improvements district to district that are not as segregated, in, in district segregation, racial segregation is actually growing. And we, in New, York, in New York State, it has the most segregated schools in the country. And New York City is a major driver of that. There are more white kids attending public schools, fully public schools now than there have been, but they're concentrating into those schools. Our schools are still intensely segregated. Um, I've, I looked up some information on niche.com to prepare for this. And uh, the six Harlem D3 schools are, uh, you know, anywhere from 12, like 10% white to about two and a half percent white. We know Harlem right now is about 18% white residents. So if you are living in an area with a school that 2% of the students there are white and 18% of the neighborhood is white, that's a lot of kids that are coming to this neighborhood and then deciding that they're going to live their life elsewhere. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's unfortunate. And, you know, we're guests here. Uh, you know, this isn't, this is a historically black neighborhood and I, I respect that, but if you're going to come in and be part of, of the, the street fairs and the scene and the restaurants, I really think investing in the public inst institutions that have built this neighborhood and keep it alive aligns with your principles if, if you really do believe in equity. And it's something that it has to be a conversation as uncomfortable as it is. And people like to point to exceptionalism. Well, I, I wanted to do that, but my kid or this. And it's like, no, 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 we're all we all want the best for our children. I don't not want the best for my kids, <laughs> you know? Now, here's a, an opposing article that I found. It's called Chalkbeat. I like Chalkbeat. I just subscribe because they have really up-to-date statistics about the numbers. And it says, the, um, in April of 26, 2023, the city's education department budget would drop by nearly $960 million next school year under a more detailed budget proposal released by our mayor, Eric Adams. By the way, the cops just got a rate. Yeah. Though the city officials did not offer specifics about the impact on individual campuses. So two-thirds of that cut, or $652 million, is the result of Adams' decision to reduce the city's contribution to the education department. Another $297 million is from a drop in federal funding, which is drying up as we were talking about as pandemic relief programs end. No, now Adams vowed that this specific cost-saving measure will not take a dime from classrooms. How? I don't understand. How do you cut the budget by almost a billion dollars and say it won't take money away? I I, I went to art school, so I'm maybe I'm missing something. <laughs> math math and statistics not not my strong suit, but I, I make it make sense. The yeah, math is not officials. Math. Yeah, they say officials <laughs> emphasize this would not result in a loss of benefits or other services. I don't understand it. Instead, it will largely come from recalculations on how much the city spends in fringe benefits, such as health insurance for teachers. Now, you told me specifically what's going on in your school. Can you repeat that about what the teachers are going through, like what they can't do and 
Yeah. So I did get, I had a conversation with our principal because I I did get corrected on a few things about um, staffing shortages. We have not had to cut teachers, but other schools have. And that is, we're already starting from a place where we need more personnel in the schools. And teachers will tell you that we need more guidance counselors. We need more one-on-one aides. We need more special education teachers. Now we are especially going to need more dual language and Spanish speaking teachers and staff. Our school has a DL, dual language program. So we have teachers whose native language is Spanish or who are fluent in Spanish, but we need nurses, we need administrators, we need guidance counselors, we need family aid workers, people who are also supporting our changing population in our schools. Um, In a single day, there were 12 migrant youth families enrolled at 180 in one day once. So we're seeing the volatility of the, the political landscape that we're in is impacting schools. And that's happening everywhere. That is happening in other districts, in more affluent schools as well. The issue is that when we talk about, you know, the per student funding model and all of these things, NCLB legislation that we don't, you know, we should rally around, rally against, vote and advocate for more equitable policies. But in the meantime, while we wait for those tides to turn, schools that have deep resources, have wealthy parent populations can fill those gaps, you know? They can fundraise to hire those personnel that are needed and to make those specialty programs. And if you're not at one of those schools, you're just going to not have that same resource available. And that's just so crappy. We're just admitting that the model of public school funding is that parents have to make up a lot for what the government is choosing not to do. And if you are in a community where parents don't have the same privilege or, you know, there are more unhoused or transient housing scenarios in your school. And now that we have uh, more asylum seeking students in our school, you just don't have the bandwidth for the hours that you need to put into that fundraising or the deep pockets that you need to make up for those deficits. And while we advocate for more just policies, we need to say, okay, we're done making this just the school's problem because our entire community will inherit these children. They are the leaders of our, of our future. They, we hope that they feel want, that they want to stay in Harlem and do amazing things for our community. And if we don't start now, then we aren't going to sustain as a community. As long as the, the public education system is still seen through a competition model, uh, as long as society looks at education um, as this fall meritocracy, based on the parents' accomplishments, uh, we will continue to see a caste system in our education system. Um, And I don't think that a good portion of the country actually cares about that. Um, You've seen this with the um, student debt conversation and how that's been politicized. Um, And that's openly grounded in that some people deserve to have to be in debt to pay for school. And some people don't deserve to be in debt to pay for school. Um, That's on a higher education level. And that debt doesn't start when people finish their degrees and go on to higher education. That debt starts um, in the education gap that uh, exists that don't allow schools to be properly funded, uh, to to have the proper resources. Uh, And and that's where the debt starts. That's the deficit 
um, in opportunity. And as long as the deficit in opportunity is continued to be uh, normalized in our country, then these issues will continue. Um, noble efforts made to decrease that gap. This is this is by good people like yourselves and educating more people to become good citizens and care about the communities that are around them now, and also that they are in are, are vitally important. But it's an uphill fight um, that's going to continue um, based on how people view the education system in this country. Absolutely. And the more you get involved in the community, as Natalie knows that I've, you know, like I was supposed to go to a dinner later tonight and I have to cancel because um, Kristen Jordan, Chris Richardson, the one who's mentioned in this article, she's our councilwoman. The more I've gotten involved, the more politics I see get in the way of, you know, you think you want to, you think these things are easy solutions. These things are so obvious. And then you see in your own community, people working hard against the people who are trying to fix the problem. In Harlem, Black people in Harlem, working against other Black people in Harlem who are really trying, honestly, to fix. I, I've, I have seen this woman get dragged um, in email form, you know, because it's an election coming up. Uh, people talking about her not attending certain meetings and not doing this. She's the first woman, this is Kristen Jordan Richardson, she's the first woman to bring to the table affordable housing in Harlem. They were going to bring a, a building on 145th Street. I say this all the time on the podcast. She was the one that brought attention to it. It was not going to be affordable for anyone that lives actually in Harlem. It did not represent anyone's salary in Harlem as far as they were calling it affordable. The news was even calling it affordable housing without explaining that it wasn't affordable. These little fine prints, all these little things, like the whole, the, the rabbit hole of just finding out. I mean, the, this true story, you guys, this morning, the guy who picked up my laundry, I know I sound very privileged right now, but <laughs> right. The guy who picked up my laundry, he goes, what do you do? You know, like, what is, what are you doing? Like, cause he saw my headset on, I go, I'm about to do a podcast. He goes, what do you talk about? I go, well, we're talking about the funding schools today, you know, in Harlem. He goes, you know, I live in the shelters. I was blown away. I never knew that about him. He comes, picks up. He's a really nice guy. Gotten to know him for years. I didn't know that he lived in the shelter. And he was like saying, he goes, Marina, the situation in the shelter is so corrupt. The, the, the little details of things that you have no idea what we go through. And now that they have you know, asylum seekers, and this is his view, they're coming in and they're getting better treatment than we are who are actually here in the shelter. And it goes, it's no fault of theirs. It's just, we know it's a political stunt and it's pitting us against them. He goes, there's no reason for me. I, I want to get affordable housing, but I, the, the, the red tape that I have to go through, it's all a trap. I'm just like, I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, 
Now, these are the people we really need to hear from. Like the people who are actually going, like Natalie, hearing from you as a mother, like Xavier, she was a little intimidated by your resume. Like she was almost uncomfortable to come on. And I was like, no, your story is the real deal. This is the real story. Everything else is peppered with politics. This is what I want to hear. This is what people really want to know. The guy who came to my door who's, you know, dropping off my laundry, that's the guy I want to hear from. I want to hear the nitty gritty of what it's really like. There's so, many, yeah. There's so many functionally anyway. poor people in our society and COVID definitely opened that up even more. Um, people that are homeless uh, in multiple major cities, um, they have jobs, full-time jobs. Um, they can't, and they can't afford it, but they don't have a, a livable wage. Um, and, and then um, take that and then you add kids to the equation. Uh, and then you have a situation where you are functionally poor. Uh, I don't like this. I mean, it's, that's the best term I could actually use to, to, to include people who work for a living, but are unhoused uh, or underhoused. Um, and they still, in turn, have to still send their kids to school. It is a, is a massive problem in this country. But I think the the main, I'll, I'll come back to this again, that most people think that they deserve that outcome. And as long as we have a society that looks at a competition, they are always going to think some people deserve to be poor, who deserve to not have the proper education, who deserve to not have a, a proper uh, nutrition for kids while they are in school um, to be able, and also not the proper nutrition at home to be able to concentrate and do their homework. And there's so many different things that go into what it requires to get a kid through school. They have to be able to eat. They have to be able to safely go back and forth. They have to be able to have books and textbooks. They have to have um, updated classrooms that meet the technological demands of the 21st century and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, mental health services, uh, a good nurse. I mean, I can go on and on and on. and and. And these are the things that are required to be able to properly educate a child. And if they do not have that, they're not going to be proper to, to properly compete. But if you look at the system, uh, it's the system as a set of competition, then, well, it's OK that they can't compete. And that's what has to change in the minds of people. And it's really hard to do that. So you, you just have to be able to create more people that care in a system that refuses to change itself. A hundred percent. And the more that I think about my relationship to competition, I'm like, what is the prize? Because <laughs> I'm just working really hard and I don't want to spend my days this way. And the housing crisis, our aggressive post-capitalist hellscape, all of that contributes to inequity in education. All of those social issues are inextricably linked. Our shelter system here in New York will move families around as shelters fill up, as their scenarios change. Maybe a parent, you know, uh, leaves or or the dynamics of the, the house change in a way that makes them move to a different location. And parents are left with the choice of do I keep the one kind of grounding, stable thing in their life, the school, keep that constant and keep them in that community where they feel the sense of safe place and they know people and it, and it feels secure but now I'm adding an hour onto my morning commute and I'm trying to find a job. Most, most if not, probably not all, but most unhoused families that I have, you know, unhoused friends and families that I know have jobs. 
I don't know anyone who hasn't been pursuing work while they were in a shelter. So the whole respectability politics and equating money and privilege with goodness is the core of the issue. And it's so complicated. And if we don't fix our housing crisis in New York, we're not going to fix our education crisis. Those things absolutely conflate. Yeah, that's why I canceled my dinner plans later because the woman, she's having this meeting today about affordable housing. And I know they're upset. They're like, we knew you weren't going to come. I was like, but this is, I'm sorry, this is more important to me. I love like, you. This meeting... It's Thank you, like, Marina. It, You're it, so wonderful. It, it drives me crazy. And I, I, I don't know if it's also because the pandemic just brought. Um, oh, my. My is my it says my connection is unstable. Can you see me? You, you froze for a hot second, Marina. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. It's like. Um, I paid for Verizon file. Speaking of privilege. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so much problems with this file. This is like, it's like, I don't know what I did. I did something today that just, Mercury's am I okay now? Mercury's not even in retrograde anymore. I mean, I don't think so. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's just, uh, Stace is saying both your guests are connecting a lot of dots, especially great work today. So yeah. Um, but yeah, I was saying that I just have to make this meeting um, I have to be there. I need to know what's going on. I need to know what my councilwoman is up to. But, you know, I do want to talk about the subway murder that happened that is stu stunning um, and dividing New Yorkers. And I saw you posted something recently, Xavier. Can you talk to that? Because mm. well, I will freeze. Yeah, I... I, I yeah, I've, I've talked about this extensively on social media, on my Twitter page, but I've also was just, I am a, a legal and culture contributor for ESPN, uh, and I was on air talking about this on Thursday. And the main point is this. Uh, an unhoused person is seen as a nuisance to society. People are going back and forth to work, doing their business. And then there's an individual who is unhoused, oftentimes um, mental health challenges and in terms of not having adequate resources or adequate support or care about this individual, they are, may have bouts of mental illness. Um, this reduces their capacity to act, um, to be able to appreciate their own actions. And so when you have someone as cannot appreciate their own actions, then they are doing something that actually excuses them for anything that they actually do. Um, but if you are in a situation where you become a disturbance, um, that is not cause for extrajudicial lynching in the subway by someone who um, determines that this, that you, your, your life doesn't matter in that moment. Um, and I think that it's unfortunate that, our, that a society look at military and say, okay, then that person is deputized to act like a cop in that situation, or even worse, um, well, we live in a society where there's a certain segment of Americans who believe that they have to police blackness wherever it lies, um, whether they are housed or unhoused. I mean, we, we really have to look at what happened in a wider society in terms of people starting to compare it to George Floyd, well, well to actual police, to 
in vigilantism, slave patrols. There's a history of policing blackness in our country. Um, and many black people that I know have been policed by people that don't have a badge. Uh, that we all saw the situation that happened in a, a TJ Maxx where an individual decided to punch a black woman when she hadn't reached the boundary line to be able to, to determine whether she actually had taken the goods with no opportunity to return those goods back. I mean, and there is a society that think it's okay to kill someone if they are disturbance. That is disgusting. And, and if, it, if you are listening to this podcast, you really need to check yourself. Every in, in our constitution grants our people who are accused of a crime of certain rights and to be tried and convicted. And no one has the right to be able to go to another person and take their life and act like judge, jury, and executioner in this country. And that's pretty much what I've expressed. And you know, I was talking with my trainer who is white, he's a white man who dates black women. A lot of black women. I told him I could be his black woman um, whisperer, but he said he fit, he had it down. Um, I was like, really? You think you know black women? Good luck. <laughs> um, but Brutal. he was didn't understand when I said this was um, murder. He said, well, is it? He goes, wasn't it just in defense? And then I go, well, it's like in... Legally, isn't it considered involuntary manslaughter in the courts? Wouldn't they call this involuntary? Well, uh, is it involuntary? Am I saying it right? I, I think it's important to to to. There are multiple things that this gentleman could be charged with. Uh, and the first thing is first degree murder, where you contemplate and carry out a plan to kill someone. I don't. There's. I don't see any proof of that happening, but. Who knows you know, what this man had going on earlier in his day. So that has to come out in a, in a court of law that would be an investigate him, determine more circumstances in and around mm. um, this, because there have been cases of people who have contemplated going to kill homeless people before. So we don't know about that. The, the second element of that in, in, talk, in terms of talking about their, that intent um, in multiple degrees uh, will determine whether, you know, whether it's self-defense when I look, People talk about self-defense. Self-defense of what? No, you ask individuals who are defending this individual. They, no one says anything that was specifically done that would warrant some individual to give them a lethal chokehold. Um, and even if you are acting in self-defense, there's a, there's a concept called imperfect self-defense. When your actions go beyond what's required to defend yourself or others. Um, holding someone down and having two other individuals help you goes beyond self-defense. And by the way, I, I, this is the part that really is bothering me. Not enough talk has been about the criminal charges of people who helped him. Now, if you in a commission of a crime have two people help you do it, they are criminals too. They have aided and embedded you. They, they should be arrested as well. These three individuals committed a crime in open face, public, recorded. And the fact that there is a debate about that um, goes to show about what people live actually matter, the nature of self-defense and bastardizing it based on who the individual is, an unhoused black person. 
um, who is, doesn't have the mental capacity to appreciate their own actions is really, really despicable. Now, I do want to say in New York City, am I am I coming in okay? You're yep. fine. Oh, okay. In in New York City, thank you. I am fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, talk your stuff. Talk um, your stuff. But in New York City, it has been challenging on the subways as an individual, and I do feel like what's happening is people are are not logical right now with their fear. Their fear seems to trump logic and uh, law. And even for me, in the subway, at times, I'm terrified. I mean, there are moments where you don't know what to do. And it's got it's reached that point where even I've had certain thoughts that I don't like. I'm not going to lie. When you're in a situation and you can't, you know, you have someone standing over you and you don't know if they're going to hit you or... And actually, the day after this happened, there was a guy who did exactly that, looked at me, didn't have his, his pants were down. I understand all of the stuff you were just saying. However, in that moment, my flight, fight or fight or flight body doesn't know that, you know? So I'm, th I'm thinking those people who were also standing around at a certain point, they could have figured it out once he was restrained, like, what are you doing? But I'm thinking like initially we've all been left to kind of fend for ourselves because of our mayor who promised safer subway, but did not in this situation. Like he kept saying that was his goal. I mean, he's defunded the schools for the safety of the subways, right? He, uh, the police just got a raise and all of the, they should be like, you know, clicking their heels. And yet I don't see them when I'm in these situations. I don't see them. I see them on Instagram. I see them having group discussions. They have soul train lines as far as I'm concerned. I mean, like they aren't doing what they need to be doing. This should never have gotten to this point anyway. But listen, listen to this though, Marina. It, it, in terms of your experiences, yeah. your experiences and anyone else's experience with an unhoused, mentally ill person, still that's, that's a form of bias. So it's one thing to have bias in terms of your thoughts about what someone might, might do to you. It's another thing to act on them. It's another, it's, an, it's, it's another to, to, to go past what your thoughts of them are to actually killing them. Uh, I, I yeah, but it's also fear. I, I mean, I, I do get afraid. Yeah. But feelings uh, aren't facts. <laughs> yeah, if, if, yeah. And I think it's also important to recognize what, and I'm, I'm breaking it down to that, uh, that extent because that's how the law looks at intent. Um, and because there, there are three elements to a crime. Uh, and one of them is the, your your mental state, you know, what you, what you intend to do. And then the second thing is your actus reus, the thing that you the thing that you do. And your, what's in your mind? I want to harm this person. I want to do something, uh, and you carry it out. I mean, that's the difference between you becoming a person who is an observer in that situation and a criminal. And I I I think this is really important. People will talk about, oh, what would you do in that situation? Well, what. That determine what's a, a lethal weapon. That does depends on certain people's skill point. The law does recognize if I know some sort of martial art and I use my martial art and go beyond that to harm someone, that is actually considered in terms of 
how the law looks at a, at a criminal or a deadly weapon. The same thing, it happens with someone who maybe have some sort of experience, maybe in the military, to be able to take actions that may be able to put someone down and kill them. The law has to look at that. And so you and I think it's also important to recognize that what people are saying about the danger that they potentially might be in. If it's unreasonable and you go beyond that, this is making you a criminal. And if you are multiple people ganging up on another person, I think it's really interesting, by the way, when you know Tucker Carlson got fired from Fox News and it, it, some text messages came out and about uh, about uh, and he said in this situation, that's not how uh, white men fight uh, and and how that played into him getting fired. Uh, and then you see a situation like this. Um, where multiple people are ganging up on one person. It's not, I, I, it's very important. It's not, it was just not one guy that did this. It was multiple and people. And one was black too. Yeah, or of, of color, I should say. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I, I saw it. Um, and, I, I, and, and, and you, you don't know what's in people's hearts or in people's minds, but the end result is a person is dead. And yes, the system could have acted to maybe protect not just people from individuals that may potentially commit a crime um, because they have mental health issues, but also protect those people from people who might be able to harm them <laughs> by providing them the necessary services that they need. But the end result is someone's not here anymore. And that person's life actually did matter. And of course, I, and I think that in terms of the media's reporting, the fact that they would give the name of the individual that they could potentially be charged showed another measure of bias. There are plenty of times that the media, when they're reporting a story about a suspect in a crime, a potential suspect in a crime, they report the person's name. And the fact they were able to report the person who died name, and there's a debate about whether he deserved to live or die, and there's not a conversation about the name of the individual that potentially did it, and whether he should have did it or not, that's a problem. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I also, but I do believe that we should hold this mayor accountable for this. Well, AOC lashed out at him and his response to this, and it was pretty inhumane that he could qualify this as um, a gray area. I'm really disgusted by that. And the thing, you know, since like 2016, I've been thinking every time something tragic happens, which is just like very fast and furious these days, um, you know, is it the, the horrible thing that happened or the way people responded to the horrible thing that happened that's making me more upset? And this one is a, a real toss up, but I'm so alarmed that bystanders sat on the subway and watched these three men kill a man and that there wasn't a, 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 an uprising, that people didn't say, you're choking the fucking life out of him, stop it. And that it wasn't, uh, and there was no intervention. And I, I've always felt that New York City is a place where, yeah, crazy shit happens all the time. You absolutely could be the random victim of some random ass act of, of insanity just because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I had faith in our city to jump in. There were instances where I saw public rally around situations and help people. And I thought that that was the strength of our city. And this just amplified to me that 
the way that we have been worn down by the lack of mental health resources has absolutely meant that that Jordan Neely is dead now. And it also has meant that the people that stood there and watched a man get murdered or sat there, and now we'll have to reconcile that for the rest of their lives, that they could have maybe stopped someone from dying and didn't, are also completely worn down from a a lack of mental health resources because their humanity checked out. Mm. They didn't... They didn't have humanity in that moment. And how healthy are we as a country if we can watch someone get murdered again and stand around as a crowd and and just say, well, I'm afraid of, of people who are erratic. And even though we rationally know that someone who is suffering from poor mental health is more likely to be the victim of a crime than the perpetrator. In that moment, if you are able to just watch someone die, like your mental health needs to be called into question also. And I know there's inherent risk. I know when men fight, I have like a safe word with my kids. If there's a situation dicey on the sidewalk, that means like, don't mess around. We got to go like mommy. Like it's our, our term. That's just like that neighbor is having a hard time and they need space for their body. Let's, let's move away. But in a situation where I saw somebody die in front of me, I would hope that I would pepper spray the shit out of those men and tell them to stop. And I, I hope that all of New York is asking themselves if, if they would do the same and making sure that they are valuing the lives of our fellow New Yorkers. <laughs> you, if you, if you yeah, look at someone the dustbin of society, they're not look, you're not looking at them as a fellow New Yorker. You're looking at them as that they don't belong to society at all. Yep. Yeah. Yeah been a challenging time overall in New York City. I do want to ask you this question, Natalie, about oh, Stace, thank you for give it, giving me a sec. In fact, the bystander effect was recognized and began to be studied as far back as, as the brutal murder of Catherine Kitty Gen- Genovese, Genovese in 1964. Kitty. This is not a new phenomenon and doesn't occur only when victims are members of marginalized groups. Well, isn't that what Lord of the Flies is all about, too? That's what Lord of the Flies is. It's about that standing by while Piggy was being, you know, brutalized. Uh, Okay, I'm just going to, like, speak really specifically about this, though. So we have a culture of white women who will get involved and become a vigilante <laughs> if, um, if like some, if they don't feel that a birder should tell them to have their dog off leash or a black family should barbecue mm-hmm. or, you know, it's not like mm-hmm. being in your face about telling you what you're doing wrong is not a part of, <laughs> of the, the cult of whiteness. And then when somebody's dying, all of a sudden that doesn't activate, like, mm. That's seriously depressing, just gutting. <laughs> and that, you talk about that fear, right? That fear of violence, black violence, causes the, causes the confrontation, causes the calling the cops, causes all of those different things. But now you want to sit back and be chill when someone's being murdered in front of you. It's, it's a perverse way that the mind goes. Um, and that's an excellent point. I think it's it's reminds me of what Chris Rock said years ago about it's in your best interest to take care of schools, communities, because I, I've said it before on here. I'll never forget on Fox News, a woman was saying there's nowhere to go anymore. 
you keep, she's running from the pandemic brought out so much that they are running from neighborhoods to find that community that's safer, but they're finding that there's no safe. I mean, look, we just had the shooting in Texas. We've had shootings in very Highland Park, Illinois. There's nowhere to go anymore because all of this eventually will become in your backyard. You know, reparations, I feel how it happens all the time on the subways, by the way. I feel like every time someone from Wall Street gets on the subway and has to deal with unhoused individuals, it's right in your face. It's like, you know, it's right there. Mm-hmm. Um, Stasis, oh, go ahead. It makes New York feel like real life. You know, when I go, I, my uh, the majority of my family's in Western Pennsylvania and I feel so detached. I love my hometown and I love my family very much, but just being there, it's different than New York in that you feel like whatever the social commentary is of the country at large, you feel on a very pronounced level in New York City. And there's something difficult and beautiful and fucked up and great about that all at the same time. This is what I was going to, I was trying to get to. Um, Thank you, Natalie. Um, What are the pros and cons of charter schools? I feel like that's a whole other episode. However, I do remember your story about, and you can tell me about the person standing outside and trying to get people to go to charter schools. Because I, I see all the articles that my assistants put in about funding, but it's they're not they put the articles in not realizing this is a the funding is going to the state, not the neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. And so even though it says like New York State's budgets boost uh, funding and allows more charter schools, that does not help your school. No, I mean I'm I'm very biased anti-charter school. My parents were career public educators and um, taught um, a a portion of their career in in the poorest zip code in America um, where they both, you know, lived. So I, I see the, I see the draw. I see the, the idea that people with private money want to come in and, start a school. And these are people who have oftentimes have never spent a day in a classroom and they want to run schools like their businesses. They get to select their children, you know, their students, there's a lottery system and an application. If you're not a parent who has the bandwidth to be applying to lottery systems and going and like ingratiating yourselves to the schools, then you're probably not going to, you know, know about them in the first place. Or if you don't have a home where you're getting all the glossy mailers uh, in your mailbox, you might not. And they are encroaching on physical space in Harlem. There's a ton of charter schools in Harlem. Uh, public schools, fully public schools have had to share their buildings and have done things like lost science labs or music rooms to charter schools moving in and occupying spaces. And it's a competition for resources that people in charter schools will make claims that makes it sound like what they're doing is different or exceptional to public schools. Um, And it's like, no, you're just describing an IEP. You're just describing. So in just promoting what they do, they make it sound like other schools don't do that. Um, You know, I don't know that I've looked for the numbers in Harlem because I'm not sure what they are, charter versus public. Nationwide, charter schools do not outperform fully public schools, and many of them fail. 
And the bottom line is they get to choose their employees. They can, you know, uh, by that, I mean, their students, they can it, kick kids out. And so then kids who are having behavioral issues and not getting the support will, you know, come into fully public schools. I, I feel like it's this band-aid that doesn't make sense. Like it's, it's admission that our public schools are not funded. They're not succeeding. And then to go, well, we'll just pay for more private money instead of going, we're the richest country. We are the wealthiest country in the city and the richest country in the world. Why don't we have the best schools? It doesn't make sense. And creating this like parallel system doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's kicking the can. And I know parents who uh, want to keep their kids in Harlem schools and, you know, have decided charter and I, I don't fault them. I think the recruiting tactics of charters have gotten really aggressive. They will they will try and poach parents directly from public schools. They will stand out with flyers trying to get parents walking out of their kid out of their schools to go to their charter. That's obnoxious. I wouldn't do that to any school. And there's a lot of these kids are, it's like teenagers that they're having do that. And they're not letting them know what you're doing is controversial. And they're not telling them that. And they're not saying, um, you know, here are your rights when you're canvassing in public. If that's, if somebody wants to film you or photograph you, they can. If somebody, you know, wants to yell at you, they can. Like you might be coming up against some opposition. So in general, I'm really disappointed that Governor Hochul uh, has added 100 charter schools. We still have zombie charters that never opened up. And the reality is they create more competition. They deplete uh, resources that could go to public schools. And there's sort of a saving the saved thing that happens and leaves public schools at a deficit. I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I'm not with it. Thank you. I was about to read what you just said, too, because it says... Uh, is it Hochul or Hochul's? I don't. I always say Hochul. I was, Maybe I've been uh, saying it wrong. Hochul. 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 <laughs> what did I just say? You said Hochul's, which Hochul? it could be Hochul's. I always say people's Hochul? names wrong. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. My well, last name is Brazington, by the yeah, way. <laughs> well, um, I will. It's it's just it, it's it's a it's a it's it's a it's a dance that keeps getting that has happening with this with just different steps, but it's still the same dance. Um, to, to yeah. transition from hokey pokey, the, the governor's name to charter schools. Um, I, I think that what is counts as a charter school seems to change by definition from district to district, um, from municipality to municipality. Um, but if the government is funding a school, then it's a public school. Um, but it also has a hybrid type of model associated with it. Um, Right. The charter schools get public funding, yeah, they are so, part, but they but they don't have to play by our public rules. Yeah. Is so the part I think that, that that accountability measure is is not there. Um, so I think that if you want to be able to improve public schools, putting a different type of public school is not the way to do it. You improve the schools that are there. Um, that's what I think about it. Um, and I, I and I think that we should be able to actively solve the problem that exists. Um, not add an additional problem that exists and also also could have fraud issues related with it, um, which happens in many different. So I don't say that every type of charter school, but there is an opportunity that create because the lack of oversight creates this other window um, um, in the system as well. As well. Um, just we need to improve public education and we just need to be able yeah. to recognize the importance of every student in every classroom and being able to individually meet their needs and not feed into the competition system. Um, that makes people not really care about what happens with individual um, kids. And that's what I've been talking about this whole time. 
we need to care about people. We need to care about people's parents. We need to care about communities. We need to care about kids. We need to care about those in our own house. We need to care, man. Speaking of care, you do yoga. Mm-hmm. I, I told Natal- Natalie that you do yoga with white ladies on the south side of Chicago. Now, I know. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are, they're, they're mostly in River North. <laughs> River, they're, most of this is most uh, the yoga studio that I teach, a hot yoga studio, is, it's in River North. So even more so, they all in downtown River North, Streeterville, Coast. Let's do all the all the all the places where all the 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 white girls yoga pants are. That's why. I'm Did there. I hear it? It's hip hop yoga specifically. Uh, well, is that it's right? not hip hop yoga specifically. He but, has done it though. But okay. I, but it is most of the music that I do play on classes is, is hip hop, R and B, Afro beat. So, um, but what I love is the studio that I teach at is pretty diverse. Half the teachers there are, are African American. We have a, a, a third uh, are African American women. Um, and we do have a good diverse population in this particular studio. Um, it's pretty, pretty dope. That's called ritual high yoga. But you it. gave me a joke about a year, was it years <laughs> ago when you came to New York? Cause you did hip hop yoga with some white ladies, right? Am I, I right? Sure did. The first studio that I started teaching at was, was, was white AF. I ain't gonna front, but I, Hey, props to them, them blonde white ladies that got me into yoga. Cause I, that's where I found yoga. So unfortunately, and I, it's in West Loop. It's it, gentrifying area. I mean, I couldn't find good yoga in any other part of the city. That's why I found the yoga act. And I think that uh, mental and physical health in these different communities are is extremely important. You're not going to go down the street and find uh, too many yoga studios, hit gyms, uh, you name it. Cause, and also people can't afford those different things to be it, to have. Yeah. Uh, uh, hey, I, I, can I, can I, can I live? Can I eat? Can I, can I, can I feed my <laughs> right. family? You talking about yoga and working out? <laughs> you talking about fresh fruits and vegetables? What? <laughs> so. And you're still, are you still a vegan? I am still vegan. That is, that is absolutely correct. Uh, veganism uh, is is a big part of my life. Um, it, I, I feel great. And I love yoga. I love uh, my mental, emotional, uh, physical well-being is at the top of my list. I think that everything in my life flows from that. Um, I made that executive decision once I started getting into yoga and mindfulness and meditation uh, that everything in my life was secondary to how I I experienced the world um, through my consciousness, through my mind, through my body. And making that shift has made me definitely uh, a more balanced um, person as a result. Um, and I, I, I definitely love sharing that with others as well. That's awesome. I, you know, I was a vegan. You remember the first time I saw your meal at the cellar, I was like, are you happy? Is everything okay? <laughs> but then I became a vegan. <laughs> Short, gotcha. like, I don't, I, <laughs> but I haven't, I don't think I've seen you or talked to you since I was diagnosed with breast cancer, but I, you know, I'm, I'm surviving. I'm doing well, but I did take on a vegan diet. I mean, it's not easy on Sundays. I do have chicken. So. I think in terms of your medical condition, (laughs) I have a lot of different reasons why I'm vegan. And I have a lot of reasons why veganism isn't for everybody. There are plenty of communities Mm. that can't afford being vegan. Number one. Yeah, in the people, meantime. And many, plenty of people who can't, don't have the, the, the body chemistry to be able to support veganism. Uh, and we also have people who, who their consumption of meat is connected to religious 
um, ancestral backgrounds. And, and I'm definitely not trying to come against that. I think people have a very dogmatic way of looking at the world. And one of my philosophies is I, I reject dogma in all of its forms. Uh, there, there are complicated problems in the world. There are complicated solutions. And, um, and but we also have to simplify this for ourselves in order to see these things clearly. And one of those things is why people are vegan. I, I am continuing to pray and to wish for your continued thriving hood in your body. Um, past that, and good to see you very healthy. I'm glad we've had a chance to reconnect um, after a long time. You're looking good. Um, and I'm Thanks, glad that Xavier. you are vegan. And whatever you need to do to make sure you're feeling good, you best to do that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, both of you, Natalie. Bra- Thank Brasington. You. you got it. I've been saying it wrong this whole time. And Most Xavier, Xavier Pope. That's right. Not Pop. No. Poop. And we all go out on, well, we're going to definitely promote this fundraiser show. It is a, so hum, Comedy in Harlem, the only Black-owned comedy club here in New York City, is a intimate space of 80 seats. So uh, it's an exclusive event, which means uh, we want the funders there. We need the money. But also educators and parents need a laugh. Like they really need this. This, this aside from raising funds, is building a platform for the six Title I schools in district, the Harlem section of District 3 to connect, share resources, be even more resourceful and creative in the way that we tackle the problems that we're facing and celebrate our victories together. So the half of the tickets will be, uh, the structure is that half the tickets will go free to those communities. Because if you are a working class parent in New York, getting a night out is so hard. So we are offering um, free tickets and childcare that the sponsorships are covering. So we really need sponsors. You uh, are gonna want your logo and your name attached to all of this amazing talent that is gonna be there that day. And that we, the big public platform that we're building for this. It's a good look. You can go to withandaboutprojects.networkforgood.org. The fundraiser is called Genius and Joy. And you can make a donation, you can buy a ticket, but the thing you should do most of all is share this with uh, the company in your life that has a sponsor and wants to go, but also uh, in our gift get model believes in giving a night of joy and release and self-care to the Harlem educators that have been working so hard, especially in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, so please sponsor our event with friends like us. You know, we're going to come together and support our community. Yes, perfect. Thank you, Natalie. And Xavier, where can our listeners find you? Well, you can find me uh, every Thursday on ESPN Las Vegas, uh, and that is uh, available. You can go to Twitter for the link, or you can go online and search for ESPN Las Vegas. Also, you can find me at Xavier Pope, X-A-V-I-E-R-P-O-P-E, on Twitter or on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, and uh, also hashtag suit up news to see like uh, past episodes of suit up news. And with friends like us, great conversations and great connections and that realness ensues. Thank you both so much. Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. You will get links to on my link tree, which is there, which is also on my Instagram handle for the show, which is May 25th. But it has all the links for 
donation and for supporting our show on May 25th at the Harlem Comedy Club. The stars that will be there. We have Yamanika Saunders, Keith Robinson. Well, you have to go to the link. We're going to be doing a trivia game show. We're going to be giving out like gifts to people who can answer these trivia games about Harlem. May 25th, 6 o'clock p.m. We're doing it early because we know parents have to get back home. So please do what you can. The I will be putting everything in our social media to show you where this event, how it's happening, how you could get more donors to support. So please support us. Um, thank you so much. With friends like us, you can bring smart individuals, smart and empathetic individuals, because that's what the world needs more is empathy. Thank you so much. And Stacy said, outstanding show today. Both guests insightfully connected a lot of dots. Thanks, well Stacey. done, everyone. Check, Check us out. out.